Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Eric Williams. Eric is a brand new attorney, a first-year litigation associate in Foley's Houston office, and in this discussion, Eric reflects on growing up in Houston, Texas, attending the University of Houston for undergrad, and earning his JD from South Texas College of Law. But of course, this is the path in the practice, so his journey is not exactly that straightforward. In fact, what you're soon going to learn about Eric is that he worked for over a decade before deciding to attend law school. So I get him to unpack a bit of that journey to reflect on some of the various roles and fields that he worked in. And also, he gets very candid about his decision to go to law school and how it was after he really lost everything professionally and decided that he needed to start over. Of course, I am so glad that he did because what you'll also hear is that he really excelled at South Texas College of Law. So I get him to share some of his insight and advice to law students and how they too can be successful in law school. And of course, I get Eric to reflect on why it was he chose litigation. We then end our discussion with Eric providing some wonderful advice on the importance of having an even-keeled approach to law school and to life. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Eric Williams. Eric, welcome to the podcast. I'd like to get started by having you give a brief professional introduction. Yes, yes. So my name is Eric Williams. I am a first-year litigation associate in the business litigation and dispute resolution here at Foley, and I am in the Houston office. All right, so we're going to start at the somewhat at the very beginning, not the very, very beginning, but close to the beginning, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up? So I am a lifelong Houstonian, born and raised in Houston, Texas. I've lived a few different places, which I'm sure we'll get to throughout the session, but Houston is home. That's where the majority of my family is. I have a little bit of family in Louisiana and Atlanta, but Houston is definitely home for me. So I want to get that snapshot if I found Eric in, I don't know, middle of elementary school, I don't know, fourth grade Eric, paint a picture. What's life like? What are you into? I want to know about like, yeah, childhood Eric. Childhood Eric. So fourth grade Eric would probably be somewhere with some skinned up knees, you know, high socks, playing every sport that I could. And then when I'm not playing sports, video games, but my family, we're a huge sports family. And so growing up, I played every sport you could imagine, soccer, basketball, football, baseball, golf, whatever my dad could kind of get my brother and I into and seemingly him into the coaching world because he was my little league coach and my brothers for up until till he couldn't, you know, till grade school, till middle school. So a lot of sports. I was outside all the time. And of course, this was before social media and the gaming wasn't as big. So, you know, we were out and about a lot. But during that time, fourth grade-ish would probably be around the time when like the Nintendo 64 came out and the first PlayStation and Sega Genesis. So when I wasn't outside playing sports, I was likely fighting my brother for control of the, <laughs> of the video game system in the house. 
And I like that you gave me a little snippet of family life. So is your brother older or younger? Older. So my brother is six years older, and uh, I have a little sister who is 13 years younger. So big age gap there. But uh, yeah, so I'm the, I'm the middle child, the, the crazy middle child. As you. The, the six-year age gap with your older brother, does that make it such that you're – so I'm an only child. So I have, I'm just, I don't know, projecting here and guessing, but I do have two boys, but they're pretty close together. They're, they're a little over two years apart. So they, they're almost growing up more like twins. I mean, they're not, but you know, you can pretend like you're the same age when it's only two years, but six is sort of the like, is it like I'm looking up to my older brother? I'm trying to do what he's doing, even though he's a lot older than me. Yes. It was a lot of emulation. I, whatever he did, I tried to do. So the sports thing was like, all right, well, he's playing sports. I want to do that. If he's going outside to hang with friends, I want to go, you know, hang outside. Or if he had friends, my, my brother actually tells the story all the time when he would have friends come over, I was the annoying little brother. So of course they locked me out of the room and it was one of the old school handles where it had the little pinhole in the middle. And if you kind of got a paper clip or a toothpick, you could like poke it and unlock the door. And so I would try to do that every time he had friends over. And of course, I would be successful sometimes. And then they would proceed to like beat me up or kick me out or, you know, I love whatever. that though. You're like just trying to hang out with them. Just yeah. be one of the guys. You're like, just let me hang out. You won't even notice, but you're eight. And they're, you know, 14. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then I would imagine having the 13-year age gap with your little sister, she's probably closer to an only child in terms of how she grew up. <laughs> yeah, she is definitely an only child and has that, <laughs> has that, I won't say syndrome, but has that sort of experience. And it was almost like my brother and I were like second and third dads, you know, almost because we're so far removed. So we're like, all right, where are you going? What do you have on? You need to put some clothes on or, you know, something like that. So she definitely had a, a much different experience than my brother. Hey, nothing's wrong with only children. We, we're great. And people come, will say that thing to me about, well, you don't know to share. I'm like, we absolutely know how to share. It is a novel experience. I knew that you were going home. Feel free to use whatever of mine. It's those of you with siblings who resent sharing because you always had to share. Yes, 100%. 100%. Well, and you touched on your dad. So this is where I always like to ask, like, I don't know if there's lawyers in the family or if you want to highlight any like your parents or grandparents or other people who just played a significant role as you were growing up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So no lawyers in my family. I was the first in my family to get an advanced degree, to be a lawyer. My dad and my grandfather were both Houston police officers. So my grandfather was one of the first black detectives in the Houston Police Department. And then my dad followed suit, was a sergeant when he retired. He was with the force almost 30 years and has retired multiple times since then, has done a bunch of things after retirement from the, the department. And so the thought was I was going to join the ranks of the police force, and I decided obviously not to do that. So my, yeah, my dad was a longtime police officer. My mother, you know, kind of did a little bit of everything, but she's been a real estate agent for probably the last, I would say, 20 years or so and enjoys that and kind of that's her thing. But now she likes to say that she's retired as well and she'll, you know, sell a house or two when, when she feels like it. <laughs> and then my grandmother was a, was a homemaker for the longest and she is still fortunately alive today. Both of my grandmothers on my dad's side, she is 96. And then on my mom's side is, is 84. So I've got, got some good genes that I hopefully rub off well, I love that. That's a great summary also, because I do hope that my guests share this with their families. And so I just think it's fun when you get to listen to a podcast with, you know, 
hopefully your mom or dad or your grandparents check this out. So I want to say hello to them. Greetings. Yes, yes, yes they definitely will. <laughs> well, and I don't want to, of course, we can't explore it too much, but I don't want to skirt over what you just said about your grandfather being the first, did you say first black detective? One of the one first. Of, he, one it of, was, It was yeah. a handful of them that started at the academy around the same time. Yeah, so we can only imagine what that experience would be like, what he saw in his time, also what your father saw. And I'm certain you grew up, you know, with an interesting perspective having close family members that were that were police officers. And you decided at some point you were gonna be one. So maybe we can sort of pick up. I'm not sure if when you were young, you're like, I just assume I'll do what my dad does. But Take me to the middle school, high school. Is it still Eric who play? I play a lot of sports. So any other hobbies or part-time jobs perhaps come on the scene? So middle school to high school was, yeah, was Eric, you know, still the sports guy. Started to get into music a little bit more. I played the saxophone in middle school and stopped around high school. And so it was uh, still very much, I would say, sports-centered, following my, you know, my older brother's footsteps. He, at that time, by the time I was in high school, he was in college, and he played football at Texas Christian University. So, of course, it was like, the, oh, I want to do, you know, I need to put myself in position to go play college football and, and do that. So it was, you know, a lot of training, a lot of not hanging out on the scene too much was really, you know, kind of into school and sports and practice and, and and would come home, but did occasionally have, have some fun, but high school was very kind of, I was a pretty, I would say well-behaved and, and mellow high school student. So what was that thought process and next steps? You mentioned playing college football. So is that what you are mostly geared towards as we start getting that junior, senior year of college? And, and what, what happened? So where, where did you go for college and what was that process like for you? Yeah, yeah. So everything was kind of working towards that end goal. And so junior, senior year, and of course, being in Texas, Texas football is is king. You know, I that was going is, to say, I've seen yeah. a few shows, a few mo- movies, <laughs> you know, this Midwesterner doesn't have the same point, but I, I hear it's intense, serious. It is something that is communities focus on. It is. Yeah. It is. It, it is. Uh, even in yeah, high school, yeah, at, as, even at the high school level, which so the folks from Texas are like, obviously, Alexis. <laughs> but, but for some of the rest of us, we're like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. No, the high school stadiums seat like 10,000 people. And, wow. you know, the smaller towns will shut down and everybody goes, but being goes to the games, but being in Houston, a ton of people, but we still pack the house every every Friday night. So, you know, everything was kind of geared towards that. And so the recruiting and that whole process was was pretty interesting, but I ended up getting hurt a little bit my senior year. And so a lot of the recruiting kind of fizzled out, but I still had that itch because my brother had played. And, and so I wanted to follow that path. So I ended up at a small school called Mary Harden Baylor, which is a division three liberal arts school in Belton, Texas. So that's like in the middle of central Texas. It is a stark contrast from you know, big metropolitan city of Houston to a very, very small town in central Texas, but great football program. I'm sure some of the listeners have probably heard about the school, although it's small. So I was there for two years. And you have to say, what did you play? Yeah. What was your yeah, so um, I, position? I was, that? At that time, I was a, uh, I was a receiver. I was a, a slot receiver. In, inside I'm so receiver. proud of myself for even asking. This is a very <laughs> obvious question to ask, but I think certain listeners have learned Alexis is like, go sports. Yay. <laughs> go <laughs> and team. I will stop, I will stop referring to myself in third person now, <laughs> but, but okay, go on. 
Yeah, so play receiver and was able to play for two years. And like I said earlier, the program was very successful. And so we went to the national championship my sophomore year, got to play on ESPN and travel and, and do that thing, but decided that the small town life and, you know, just the football aspect of it, I guess I wasn't in sync after my sophomore year. So I ended up taking a, a short sabbatical to New York. My brother was living there at the time. And I kind of parlayed a summer internship at Clear Channel Radio to staying there a little bit longer and getting that whole experience and spent my 21st birthday in New York and just kind of living the life. And I wanted to ultimately stay there but and transfer schools, but super expensive, as you know. And I was in, you know, kind of late in the transfer process and and it just the timing so did didn't the work internship out. turn into a job for a little bit? A little bit. So I was working in the sales office of Clear Channel Radio. So the the studio itself um, is with Z100. So the studio is in Jersey City, but the actual sales office is in Manhattan. So I was traveling to Manhattan every day, riding the train, you know, doing doing the the New York thing. But just timing didn't work out, and so decided to come back home. I was getting a little homesick, and I transferred to the University of Houston. And so that's where I ultimately finished out. Was at U of H. Yep. Okay. I was curious. Not, we don't have time to go too into it because, Eric, I haven't said this yet for listeners. We have some ground to cover with you yeah. <laughs> because even though you just started at Foley, not, I don't think even a month ago, you you know, you lived a life before going to law school. And we definitely want to talk, talk about that. But I am curious. I'm just guessing going, like you said, to a much smaller town after having lived in Houston was an adjustment in a variety of ways. And also, I've had a number of Foley attorneys on who are college athletes. And it is just incredibly demanding to do school and all the practices and everything else. So I imagine that was the same for you too. It is. It's a it's a huge commitment. And I think if you aren't, if you don't have the end goal, hey, I'm going to NFL or, you know, I, I want to pursue this and you don't have that burning passion, it gets very daunting and, you know, hard to kind of keep up with for sure. So when you transferred to the University of Houston, did you have the opportunity to continue playing football or yeah. were you, did that require, okay, go on. Yeah, yeah. So, so it wasn't, you know, I wasn't on scholarship or anything. So, you know, tried to walk on and have that experience, which was fun, but I quickly realized like, hey, you're not going to the NFL. It's, you know, you need to focus on school and kind of go that route, which I was perfectly fine with. Yeah. And what was your major? What was the focus? I was a business marketing major. Business okay. marketing, so no, and, nothing. And you'd to mentioned do with clear, the clear channel and sale, <laughs> right. sales, sales and all yeah, that. Yeah. Had that been your focus as your major the entire time, or did you hone in on that at the University of Houston? Yeah, so I was kind of a general, non-declared at Mary Harden Baylor, and then when I went to the University of Houston, I really kind of focused on business. I started working at that time. It was my into my junior years when I started work. I was working full time and going to school wow, full time. Okay. Yeah, and so were you still playing football at that point? No, no. I bet okay. That was, the, the, that, the you, you indicated you changed your, I just wanted, I was like, wait, what? So just, I say just, just working full time and just going to school. <laughs> One of those alone is a just, but is, is plenty. So I can imagine that was, was challenging and you had to be judicious with your time. It was. And I, that's kind of my personality. I, I tend to do a lot of everything. 
And so I guess that's when it started was at the University of Houston. I needed money and I knew I wasn't on scholarship. And so I had to get a job and I was like, all right, well, I guess the working thing isn't too bad. And then I can still go to class and, and do that. And I was able to adjust my schedule accordingly. So it wasn't, it wasn't terrible, but it was, it was <laughs> you know, And this is a question I've not asked anyone else on the podcast. So this will be interesting. But looking at your LinkedIn, I also see that you are a member of Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity, yes. which my yes. grandfather was a Kappa. And I spent my summers in South Carolina with my grandparents. So I just feel obligated merely. And the others would be like, Alexis, you've never asked about fraternities and sororities before. But, you know, this show is also my journey through Foley and Lardner. So perhaps you can entertain this question as well. But I did want to raise that. So you are a Kappa. And let me just let me just preface this a little bit by saying, and some listeners may know this, there is a bit of a difference between the historically black fraternities and sororities and those that are not, which I'd say, I think the others maybe fall under like the Panhellenic, sort of the, whether the typical fraternities and sororities that maybe joined at predominantly white institutions or that will have tend to not attract black members, at least not as much. And I think what I've seen in my family is it's a much more of a lifelong engagement. And so that I'm guessing chances are you're still active. So I just said a bunch of words without letting you talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're, you're exactly right. I was, I was going to mention that. Yeah, the historically black fraternities and, and sororities are typically lifelong. So I am still active in my local chapter, uh, graduate chapter, or what we call alumni chapter here in Houston. We actually did University of Houston just had our homecoming. I want to say it was two weeks ago. And so it's just a reclamation of all the, the brothers that come come in and we all like to just catch up and see how everyone's doing. We have a lot of successful members locally and then nationally that are doing some amazing things. So it's always good to kind of see what they're doing. But yeah, that experience in joining the fraternity. Well, and I see you were president at some point. Was, so your school, your work, and your president. You know what? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it was, I was busy. I was busy, which I still am. But I have made some of my line brothers, which are the other members that I came in with, were initiated with at the same time. We are still friends to this day. That was in 2006. So you're talking about almost 20 years of being friends. And I've met some of the, they were in my, my wedding, some of my best friends that I still interact with daily. Yes. And I think, and this is a vast overgeneralization and we cannot spend too much more time on this, but I do think for a lot of Black people who are members of a historically Black fraternity or sorority, the role that that plays in their professional network is lifelong in a way that you may not see with some of the other fraternities and sororities. And so folks can Google to learn more about that. But I will <laughs> yes, say, see Vice President, so see Kamala Harris and the AKAs were very much involved in you know the election. And I think that was one of the first times we saw such like a national recognition. But anyway, we have to move forward because we have so much more to talk about. So you did not then swiftly decide to go to law school. You did a few other things <laughs> before. So maybe let's, let's do it this way. Could you talk about that time period between college and law school? Give some highlights. I'm sure you've had to summarize it before, and then we can see which parts to dig into. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll, we'll do high level and then kind of pick from there. So I graduated from U of H in 2008. So that was right at December 2008. So that was right when the Great Recession, the market was kind of tanking a little bit. And so I didn't have a job for probably the first eight or nine months after graduation. I was a marketing major. There wasn't, you know, you're generally going into 
advertising or you're going the sales route. And so I decided to go the sales route and had some trouble getting a job, but finally landed my first kind of corporate sales job in 2009. And then from there, I was in any kind of sales you can think of from 2009 until probably 2016, 2017. That's a long time. You just, what does that mean? Now you have to say, any, <laughs> what kind of sales? What do you mean? So I've sold anything from uniforms, first aid and safety, toilet paper, paper towels at a large Fortune 500 uniform service company. I have sold medical devices where I was the point person for neuro and ortho spine surgery. So I was in the OR during neck and back surgery. I did that for a few years. So I was on call. So that was a, quite an experience. You know, I saw this though on your LinkedIn because there I see the years as a spine specialist. A spine I specialist. Saw, I see yes. this. Yes. <laughs> a spine specialist, and that that was really fun. That was that was a fun time. A lot of stress, but super fun. And I've done. I've sold like HR services. I've sold kind of tech platforms. So I've kind of done a little bit of any type of sales you can think of, but it was always, I was kind of searching for something fulfilling. And so I got into sales because I knew, you know, I'm a personal guy, I think. I like to talk. I like to meet new people. I like to travel and, and do those things. And so sales was kind of the perfect medium for that. You're going from client to client, you're presenting, you're on your feet, you're meeting folks, and then the pay, you know, the, com the commissions can be can be pretty handsome. So I was able to buy my first house. I was married at the time. So got married, kind of did the American dream, you know, ish during that period. And so, but I was always kind of searching for something else. And so around, I want to say 2016 or 2017, I was presented an opportunity to leave the corporate space, leave the sales space and become an entrepreneur. And so it was a franchise, a family friend that had, was the first franchisee of a large food truck franchise. That was a, that was a, now it's, it is a national franchise, but the Houston locations were the first franchisees of this chain. And so I thought it was really interesting. I, I, you know, most of my mom's family is from Louisiana, Houston. So we like to cook, you know, crawfish and seafood and, you know, all that stuff. And so this was a lobster focused food truck. And so I thought it was interesting. I'm like, all right, this is cool. And so I invested a little bit of money and it was just the returns at that time were great. And the food truck and this is, industry. Are you was buying a food truck? Like, Get, 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 layman's <laughs> terms. What did you yeah, do? So, so, layman's terms. So yes, initially it was, you know, as part of being the franchisee of this group, but you're buying the truck and you are searching out your purveyors and you're getting all of the lobster flown in and all of the things associated with the food truck industry, we were doing it. And so at the time I, I was just kind of a silent investor. And then I saw like, all right, this is a viable thing. We, the lines are crazy. People are waiting in line for two hours to get a lobster roll. It's something that's blowing up. And I'm like, all right, this could be an opportunity for me to try something different and, and kind of chart my own path and and become an entrepreneur. So I decided to, you know, to leave the, the corporate space and jump in full time. And so it was um, four partners. I was one of the four that was full time, you know, running a food truck and it grew from one truck to at the height of our business, it was 10 trucks in three different cities in Houston. 
And are you cooking? When you say running a food truck, are you also, can you make an amazing lobster roll? Like what I want? <laughs> I can make an amazing lobster roll. I can make, you know, lobster tacos. I can do, you know, I can do a little bit of everything, but we weren't on the trucks day to day. But if we had a large event or we were short staffed, I could jump in. And, you know, if you think about it, everything that is great and bad with the restaurant, a food truck is just amplified times 10 because oh, have, yes. it's just a rolling restaurant. restaurant. So, yep. Although I'm already seeing how you've had some great experience coming into a large law firm. There's so many things that I'm like, that translates, whether it be the sales, whether it be all of this, but yes, okay, keep going. So what happens with that? Yeah, so things are good and and not, you know, I don't want to kind of dive into the gory details, but ultimately the business kind of floundered for a multitude of reasons. And eventually our franchise license was kind of revoked due to some things. And so I pretty much lost everything. I lost all that I had. had You had to start over. Yeah. I had to start over. Yeah. Start uh, over. Because I didn't, you know, I left the corporate space. So I had invested pretty much all that I had because I knew this thing could be something great. So yeah, lost pretty much everything I had at that time. Like I said, I was married uh, about two or three months after the business kind of floundered. My ex-wife filed for divorce and had to sell my house and just literally from one instance. It's a life, it's like a life reset. It is. I was going to say back to zero, but it's not because you do continue to carry all those experiences with you. But I'm sure at the time that was of little solace when you're like, all right, let's start over. Yeah, it is a jarring experience. I'm sure any uh, a lot of your listeners have you know gone through similar things, but it it is a very jarring experience, life altering, felt like in an instant. And so, yeah, kind of back to zero for a little bit. I was living with my cousin. I was sleeping on his couch for quite a while trying to figure out the next path. And and so this is around what year? Are we Are we like 2019? This is 2018. 20, yeah, 2018. 2018 okay. leading, yeah, leading into 2019. And so I had just gotten a sales job just to kind of make ends meet and put some money in my pocket, but it was something that I wasn't passionate about. Yep. Because you had, what, eight years or so of sales? Yeah. To- you know, fall back so it's, on. It's pretty yeah. easy to get a to get a sales job, but I knew I wasn't passionate about it. Like, hey, just need to make some money, put some food on my table, figure out my next move, and still going through the legal ramifications of a business falling out with creditors and a you know and a divorce and you know kind of navigating that space and didn't like I said didn't have any lawyers in my family. I had some friends, some fraternity brothers, and and things that uh, and and folks that were lawyers, but didn't have the funds to you know, retain an attorney and fight, you know, lawsuits and, and, you know, all all of that stuff. So was really kind of lost. And it was, I I remember it very distinctly. I was laying in bed. By that time I'd, I'd upgraded from the couch to a bed, you know, at my, at my cousin's house, but I was laying in bed and just thoughts racing through your head about, all right, well, you know, I got this email and this is happening. And what am I going to do with this? And at the time we were trying to short sell the house and it was, it had been on the market for a year and I'm still paying a mortgage. And it's just all of these thoughts. And I was like, you know what? I feel very overwhelmed. I feel like I don't know what to do. I don't know who to turn to. I don't know. Like I felt very vulnerable in that space and something just clicked like, well, how do you get out of this? What, how do you protect yourself? How do you inform yourself? And the thought was like, well, law school, like all of these things connected. I need a lawyer for, I need a lawyer. I need a business lawyer. Yeah. I need a family what if lawyer. I, what if right. I was a lawyer? What, what if Could I was I, a lawyer? Why couldn't I be a lawyer? Yeah. And so the wheel started turning like, all right, well, you know, I'll at least be educated and be able to protect myself or to navigate this space or to protect my family or to protect other folks who they don't have to go through this. 
And so that was kind of the impetus of me going to law school. And the next day I ordered an LSAT book on Amazon, like sight unseen, didn't know about registration for the LSAT, didn't know what the process is. Right. At yeah. least I'm going to have to study for it. Yeah. You know, I'm I mean, gonna have to, let's let's figure out how to study for it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that and started Googling and what are the local law schools and, and all that. But that really started that process. And so I was able to, after work, come and work in the LSAT workbook, the little prep book. And then I started figuring out, all right, well, I have to register for the LSAT. I have to do this. And so the thought was, okay, if I can take the LSAT, and do well, I'll apply to law school and we'll, we'll kind of see how that goes. And then if I get accepted, okay, then we'll see, you know, maybe I'll go. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go. Let's just see what happens. And took the LSAT and I studied for maybe six weeks. It was literally like I, I registered on the very last day. It was very an expedited process, but scored pretty well. And I was like, all right, well, this, this could be a real thing. Started applying to schools and got in, accepted into pretty much every school that I applied to. Got waitlisted on a few. I got waitlisted by my alma mater that that kind of uh that, that still <laughs> burns that still but yeah, it still burns to this day, but sorry. And got accepted. I'm like, all right, well, you know, if you're gonna do it, let's do it. And I jumped in, you know, full time, quit my job and was like, all right, we're we're right. going to law school. So where did it where did you go for law school? I went to South Texas College of Law here in Houston. So it's right in the middle of downtown Houston. Tell me a little bit about the school and what, because you said you got into a number of schools. What what caused you to choose South Texas College of Law? So, yes. Yeah, so South Texas has a special place in my heart and will always have a special place in my heart. It's a small private law school. It is geared towards diverse students. It's geared towards second career. We have a huge part-time program. And so it actually started in the basement of a YMCA here in Houston and was an evening school for professionals and over time got accreditations and and became a full-blown law school. But the very essence of the law school is geared towards folks who are working or folks who are trying to start their lives over doing something different. And so that really spoke to me. It's It's a small campus. The professors are amazing. Now it is one of the most diverse law schools in the country and then being in one of the most diverse cities in the country. So it is it is a unique a unique experience and I am a huge proponent of South Texas. They I always say anybody who asks me where should I go South Texas. You will not regret it one bit. Like I said they hold a special place in my heart because they truly gave me the second chance, you know, at life right. and and, well, and, and a, a, something about and I'm just really appreciative of your candor as we're walking through all of this, I get a lot of people who reach out to me and say, hey, I'm going to law school later in life. How is that going to be assessed by a big firm? How do I explain how, you know, me being a spine specialist <laughs> at one point and selling things related to spinal surgeries translates to being a lawyer? And I think it's really important for us to start talking about the fact how for most people, almost anything you could do before law school, whether it was five years or a decade before contributes to you being a better lawyer. I'm someone who went straight through, had all of a couple weeks between undergrad and law school. And so, and I really want to start addressing that, but I do think what can be hard, which is why it's so interesting what you were saying about South Texas College of Law, is that the law schools don't necessarily get it. And so that going part-time versus full-time, and so for school to understand the transition for someone who has a full life is a bit different. A lot of schools are still geared to that experience of someone who's, I don't know, 25 to 28 years old. And I just, I do think that can be qualitatively different. 
Yeah, absolutely. It it is. You know, it's. I think it's a very distinct kind of difference in you know how someone who didn't go to school, what they call K through JD, kind of like yourself, that it's a very different experience than someone like me who was almost ten years removed from undergrad to starting law school. But I do think that there is value in having that experience before school. Oh, very much so. And we're gonna. I'm gonna pull some of this out. Okay. I will be All highlighting right. <laughs> how because there is still part of me that is thinking about how at some point you switch jobs where you're selling things related to like I guess medical supplies. And they're like, well, Eric, for you to really sell this, we need you to stand and watch as we open up <laughs> this person's back. And you can see again, and it sounds like that was routinely what you would do. So I just, it's not dissimilar from lawyers needing to go tour the, you know, name the thing at issue in the lawsuit. You know, you need to go see how the manufacturing works, but we will connect some of those dots. At least I, I aspire to, we'll see if I do. But you start law school, you're full-time. I want to ask first about the academic adjustment after having not been in school for that long, but also probably a bit of a life adjustment as well, and the decision even to go full-time, because I'm sure you were tempted to go part-time. That had to have been something you considered. I was, you know, so yeah, twofold. So definitely, and I, I guess I'll start with the academic adjustment first. I was, to be honest, I was a little intimidated to start, you know, like I said, I've been out of school for 10 years. I'm like, man, these are like 24, 25 year olds. They're, you know, straight off of undergrad there. They have their study habits down. They know how to, you know, study and they're, they're routinely in the library and and all of that stuff. And was a little bit intimidated. Like, can I do this? Am am I going to be able to keep up with these young, you know, brilliant minds? And what I quickly found out was, I think I was, I like to say it was an advantage because I was so far removed. I didn't have any bad habits. I didn't have anything to kind of benchmark myself like this works, this doesn't work. So I came in as an open book, literally like taking every piece of advice from anybody who was successful that I identified as successful. Hey, what did you, how do you study? How do you manage your time? What subjects do you, do you study first or how, you know, any, you know, type of, Right. Let me create optimal habits for yes. this experience versus sometimes you go straight through, you're like kind of retrofitting your undergrad habits to law school, which may or may not work. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and was piecemealing the best of what I could find to formulate my study habits and, and plan and things like that. So I think because I was so far removed, it actually helped. I didn't have to recreate the wheel. Well, I did recreate the wheel. I was starting over from scratch. I think that lent to my benefit because I was able to, you know, to do well. And we'll, we'll probably talk about that here in a second. Yeah, I was going to say, let's, let me just, let me let listeners know in case they're curious, because I get it. It was intimidating. It's a tough time in your life for sure. But you did pretty well. I feel like being the valedictorian and graduating summa and all that is an indicative of, of doing well. (laughs) So you did, you did figure it out. And I'm also, I'm curious because you're not super removed from the experience. You graduated not that long ago. Do you have any general like law school tips or things that were really important to you that you think um, contributed to your success, your academic success? Absolutely. A couple. So the first thing was I approached law school and I would implore your law students that are listening to treat it like a job because it is, you know, this is a professional school or a law school is a professional school. And so having fun and, and going to the socials and, and meeting people and making friends, that is all a part of the experience. 
but you are there for a professional degree. And so I treated it like a job, literally woke up same time every day, had a routine. And I was there probably a little bit too much. I was like breakfast, lunch, dinner into late night snack every day. But it was, I think, the difference between myself and and some of my colleagues in that I really approached it. I took a workmanlike approach to it and and didn't deviate from that schedule as much as I could. You know, life kind of gets in the way and you have to make adjustments, but treated it like a job. The second thing was when studying, I never put a time limit on it. So it wasn't like, hey, I'm going to stay for a couple hours today or, hey, I'm going to study for four hours. I would have some friends who are like, oh, yeah, I'll be in the library until six and then I got to go do this and, and that. For me, it was, no, I'm going to stay in the library until I understand this concept. Until I get it. Yeah. I'm here until I get it. Yeah. And so whether that took two hours or 12, it didn't matter. I never put a numerical value on my study time. And that, I think, was also kind of what separated me is that I'm going to dedicate the time until I master the material. And I think that is what it's about is mastering the material. And then this is more, this is kind of, I guess, a little bit practical from like an exam standpoint or a classroom standpoint. You know, everybody goes, thinks you go to law school to argue your point and I want to get my point across and I want, you know, I'm going to be the contra argument here and I'm going to be devil's advocate and all that. But in reality, when you're in school, law school is a completely different animal from the practice of law. So when you're in school and especially when you're in a particular class, whether it's torts or contracts or civil procedure, you live in the world of your professor. So if Professor Smith says that this is what this means, in that that's what world, it means. that's what it means. <laughs> that is such it, an amazing it, it, advice. That is what it means. That is what it means. And it doesn't mean, you know, so if he says two plus two is five, in that class, two plus two is five. That's what you're writing on your and exam. That yep. is what you write on your exam. And I really took that to heart from the first semester. It's like, all right, whatever my professor says to me, I'm going to give it back to them verbatim. And you want your professors in a good mood when they read their exam or when they read your exam and grade your exam. And the best way I think to do that is to have them read their own words back to them. Like, hey, this person was in class and this person understands. Well, but also a big thing about being in class, because there are some people who approach law school as I, I mostly go to class, but I've learned I can get outlines and treatises and summaries of the law. And that is where you will miss that your professor thinks two plus two equals five. A hundred percent. Because the, the treatise or whatever you found may say it's four. And you'll be like, yeah, four sounds good. I'm going to write down four. Right. And your professor's like, nah, this <laughs> this is a Quimby brief or whatever, you know, whatever, wherever they pull are pulling it from. And yes, that's that will be the last thing is go you know, class. And I wanted, I do really want to highlight what you said about my goal wasn't, because I think generally law school is pretty daunting. So the goal for many is comprehension. You're like, if I can just comprehend this. I'll be okay. Or or you're just like, even that's going to be hard for me. But I do think setting your goal at mastery is next level and does mean even if you don't hit it, you're probably going to shoot past comprehension. And that is going to show up in the quality of your exam answers. For those who are listening who haven't gone to law school, a lot of times your exams are essays. You will run into some professors who have multiple choice, which I always kind of did not like. But I just I think that's a really powerful goal. And if you miss the mark, you're still you still done pretty well. So there's a couple of things. So fortunately here at Foley, we had you both of your summers in law school. So of course I have to ask, how does Foley and Lardner come onto the scene? 
So Foley came onto the scene actually very early on in my 1L year. So it was before grades came out, even first semester. There was a first look or you know recruiting event at the school, and all the firms that are in town set up, and you're you know you're doing the meet and greet. And it was one particular attorney that was there that I kind of really resonated with. We both had played football and we really kind of hit it off. And I was like, all right, this person is pretty, it's like normal. He's, you know, you hear all these stories. Wait, like, can we share who this person is? Yes. Well, he's not, unfortunately not at the firm anymore. Oh, okay. So okay. I don't, well, I don't, maybe we won't then, we won't but that's then, fine. <laughs> unfortunately, it was very He recently. was a great ambassador. He, he knows was, who he is. Thank yes, you. He does. <laughs> so you know, it was like, hey, this this guy's normal. He's cool. And you hear the horror stories of big law and we're like, oh, it's so cutthroat and these people are unhelpful and they really don't, you know, they just want to bring you in so they can work you to death. And then they, you know, they kind of spit you out. But I didn't get that vibe for lack of a better term. I didn't get that sense from him. And so it was kind of like, all right, well, you know, Foley seems like they're genuine people. And, you know, I went around to all the other tables and I didn't have that same interaction. So Foley was kind of all in the back, in the back of my mind, like, all right, they, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Which by the way, we don't talk about this enough because law students are constantly trying to assess law firms. So much of it is this feeling you get from the people you meet from the firm. So of course, read their websites, read the rankings, but a lot of what attracts people to a given firm is they connected with somebody at something. Yes, 100%. I think that is the crux of any type of recruiting or, or coming to a large firm is the people. And you hear that a lot. I interviewed with what I thought was every firm in the city and you hear, oh, we're collegial and we have a great culture. And it sounds good in theory, but when you start meeting people and you realize like, mm, I, I don't think I'm going to. Yeah, like I just, I didn't feel like I connected with them <laughs> yeah. or I didn't, they were cool, but I just didn't. Yeah. Like, mm, I don't know. Not, not my yeah. cup of tea. And yeah. every person I met at Foley after that particular individual, I got the same feeling like, oh man, I say that a lot, but they're normal. Like they right, just. We're, we're great lawyers and we're regular folk. Regular <laughs> I mean, folk, almost... you know, down to earth, <laughs> can have a conversation and it's not forced. It's very organic and genuine. And, you know, now being in the firm, that is firm-wide. That's that's every office, that's every lawyer that I've met is just good folk. And I think that is a huge selling point for Foley, but it just, it, it helps with the experience because you're going to be in office with people for 10, 12 hours a day and you want to be around people that you actually enjoy being around. Oh, people vastly underestimate how important that is. To some extent, I would even say legal subject matter area pales in comparison to do you really like the people that you're working with. And I want to talk to you a little bit about how you decided on your practice. Of course, we you, know, you just started it. So we won't do a kind of a deep dive of, you know, what your practice is as a litigator. But before I do, I do want to summarize you're with us both summers, which includes 2020 and 2021. So you were our, our first and only fully remote summer class. So the first time we met was, you know, via Microsoft Teams. I think I got to talk to you maybe twice that summer. It's funny, a lot of this podcast will be like a COVID time capsule. 
<laughs> so I've, I've had some other discussions with Summers where we got a little more in depth, but we very quickly had to mobilize, not only take the firm fully virtual, but instead of you know canceling, because a number of large firms decide to cancel their summer programs, not knowing what we'd be navigating. We had you as an e-summer associate, and then you were able to come back your second summer. And at that point, we were hybrid. It's now, you know, this is being recorded in 2022, and we've just had our first like normal and normal-ish, mostly normal in-person summer associate class, which of course, you know, you missed because your 2L summer was 2021. And I'm guessing in 2021, you were able to actually go into the office and see folks. Yes, we were 2021. We were able to come in person, but as you said, 2020 was completely remote. And yes. that was, and like you said, <laughs> you, you, have, <laughs> you have well, had We just had this episodes. level of I hope these law students trust us and decide to come back, <laughs> especially if you're a 1L, because it is not the same. We certainly did our best. You get to do a lot of like real assignments to meet a lot of people. But, you know, just this year, Foley was ranked number 11 by the American Lawyer with the uh, Summer Associate Survey for like we put on a good summer program, but it's hard to do virtually. It is hard. And not to jump back a little bit, but also part of what brought me to Foley was and kept me the second summer was a Elizabeth Neville. She is a second year here in Houston. And so my first years, and she went to South Texas as well. And she was one of the people that I recognized as, hey, this is somebody who is going places and is successful. I need to, I need to kind of figure out what she's doing. And she was like, hey, I'm summering at Foley. You should come check it out. I love the place. And so when I summered my first summer, although it was virtual, Elizabeth was in my summer class as a 2L, I was a 1L summer. And she was just like, hey, I know this is kind of weird, the whole virtual thing, but just trust me. And it's to your point, like, hey, trust me. Got to trust us a little bit. This is weird times. Yeah, this is a good spot. You're going to be okay. And well, so, and like, thank you, Elizabeth. Yes. Thank you. For, I just was on a call with Elizabeth yesterday. Thank you, Elizabeth. <laughs> yes. And so when I came back and was able to come in person, I'm like, okay, I get what Elizabeth is saying. I, this, is, this is a good spot. Okay, I'm going to push the question about your practice just a few more minutes. This reminds me. So I've had a few people in Houston request, Eric, that you be on the podcast. <laughs> One of them, and we've talked about this multiple times, but let's just like get it recorded so people can not just listen. More people can know about this, but I'm assuming it was your second summer. There was an event that was in the Houston office, and you were able to apply some of your culinary expertise, which did make you a little bit Houston office famous. So could you just say what that was and how you contributed? Yeah. And it actually happened again this summer as well. Oh, of the course. Same, okay. Yeah. Yes. So I think it. it's going to be a, re a recurring thing. Yeah. So the second summer, I guess we were trying to figure out the summer program coordinators were trying to figure out, hey, we want to do like a relaxed event where we bring in crawfish or we, you know, bring in some food and we just kind of hang out nothing too formal. And so I was like, well, hey, I kind of fancy myself as a crawfish boil master, you know, or a master boiler, however you you would say. And they're like, what, really? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I I dabbled, you know, in, in that You're like trying to be a light. Yeah. You're trying to throw it out there, but then you're like master. Yeah, I'm no, a master. I'm a specialist at this. And, and yes. <laughs> and I, was, I was being very modest and I'm like, all right, well, if you don't, like, we usually don't put summers to work per se. We like, we want you to hang out. And I'm like, no, no, no. I, I want to do it. I, and so I- And I will be messed up. I will be upset if you give me if messed you, up crop. Right, exactly. Like if you bring something <laughs> in here that I don't approve of, it's good. It's not good. 
And so they were like, all right. So I pushed the envelope and was like, look, I have all the equipment. I'm going to do it. Like, don't worry about me. This is something I enjoy. And so I boiled probably, I want to say it was over 100, 150 pounds of crawfish with help from V Tran, who is a senior associate here in Houston and her husband. And, and so we had a big crawfish boil and it was a hit. And there were some skeptics at first. They were like, oh, well, we'll see how, Absolutely. we'll see how you yeah, boil. I don't know about this. Yeah, I don't know. A summer boiling crawfish. Okay. And after the event, everybody was like, Eric, that is some of the best crawfish I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I tried to tell you, you know, and so. Okay, so you're, you're, you had a repeat performance this yes, year, which nobody told me about. I'm yeah. going to set aside my, my hurt at not getting invited. <laughs> I expect to hear about it next year. Yeah. But I just, I think, I think that's amazing. And it certainly left an impression in addition to, you know, you're now, you know, exhibiting just how like wildly smart and, you know, poised and all of that you are. I think that really sealed at the Houston office. It's a huge fan of Eric Williams, but now let's talk a bit about, so what's your practice area and how did you decide given your background, I could have seen you being interested in transactional. That, well. and, and so that's what I was going to say. So I'm in the business litigation and dispute resolution, which is just the general litigation group. So I've been here for a month. I've already worked on a few matters in L&E space and the energy space and the general commercial space. So it's kind of just a general litigation group, which I actually am okay with. I, I like to experience a lot of different things, as you can tell from my background. So I think it kind of fits with my personality and how I want to manage my practice. But to your point, yeah, I think early on the thought was, hey, you've got a, you know, business degree, you've owned a business before, you've you've, you know, you know how organizations work and, you know, are formed and dissolved and and those things. But I think what drove me to litigation was it's twofold. You know, when you're in trial or or when you're gearing up for trial, it's almost like analogous to sports, you know, all of the prep for a case and, you know, depots and all that, that's all practice and you're grinding your teeth, you're cutting your teeth. And then the trial is the game. And so I really liked that aspect of it. I'm super competitive and not saying that the transactional space is not, but it's, I would say it's more collaborative because you're trying to get the deal done or the merger or whatever have you. And so I think that piece of it lent itself to litigation. And then I like to think of litigation as like, I really like puzzles. And so it's a puzzle. It's like formulating a puzzle. And so a client will come in and say, I have this issue. Help. You know, I need your help, whether it's I I got sued or I need to sue someone or whatever have you. And as I found out throughout my summers and already here, there is never going to be anything that is like directly on point with their issue, like ever. Right. You don't go to outside counsel. You don't go to a big firm if it is a slam dunk, simple thing. Usually no one wants to pay big law rates for the like, this is super easy. It's going to be complex. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So so the complexity I really like and and I liken it to a puzzle. And so because there's nothing on point, you're like, all right, well, I've got to pull case law from this case and, and, you know, make an argument for here. And I've got to pull these pieces of this deposition and this expert testimony. And you're creating this puzzle from so many different things and presenting it to a judge or a jury saying, Hey, I know this doesn't seem analogous, but let me tell you why. And let me tell you why I should win versus opposing counsel. And I really like that piece of it. It is very challenging. It's already 
fulfilling to me. I've been here a month, but I've like come to work like super smiling every day. I'm, oh, you know, it's, I love it's that. Good. I'm, I'm here early, staying late, and and I really, really enjoy. You know, and do you feel? I know what the answer has to be, but I'll still, I'll ask it open ended. I won't ask it in a leading way. <laughs> but do you feel that your many experiences prior to law school are applicable? And if so, how are you starting to see that translate? And by the way, this is for all the law students that are like, I've gone to law school later. I'm a little concerned about how this works. Yeah, absolutely. I think from a practical standpoint, from managing stress, it definitely, from life experience to working, I've known real stress. And so when it's like I get a project and there's a tight deadline, I'm not freaking out. It's like, all right, what, you know, let me, when is it? Yeah, let, let me. When does it do? All right, let me backdate it. Here's what I got to do. And I find myself very calm in, in stressful situations. So from a practical standpoint, I think that life experience has lent itself to, to being applicable from a practical very standpoint. Very much so. Well, I think sales is a wonderful background, by the way. So people forget this, but law firms are also in the business of sales. When you're a partner with a lot of clients, that's a big aspect of how they got those clients. We don't say it that way because we're in the prestigious, you know, <laughs> esteemed practice of the law. But that is what it is at a certain point. Yeah, 100%. And there's an old adage that people don't buy products, they buy people. You know, they buy, they buy your personality. They buy your, your ability to relate to them. They buy your ability to think of issues before they think of them. And how you make them feel, and as how you well. make because because there's a million lawyers who can you know right. draft stuff, but they they like the unique attributes that make you you. Right, right. So I think sale, yeah, definitely sales is I think going to become very beneficial to me when I progress in my career and start bringing in clients and things. But for other first years, for law students who are in law school or students that are thinking of going to law school, it's a people business, and I look at my partners and senior associates that I, you know, that I work under as my clients. So although I'm not bringing in outside clients into the firm, they're my clients. And so from a sales aspect, from a customer service standpoint, from a, you know, from a work product standpoint, they are my target audience. And so I want to make sure that they want to keep working with me and come back to me and that. So it's still a sales aspect, even though I'm not bringing in clients. Yeah. Absolutely. So Eric, before I ask you my final questions, I do just want to say, I don't want to thank you so much for your candor and honesty in this discussion. I hope this doesn't sound horrible, but when we hit the point of your journey where you talked about, you know, I started in this business, it essentially fails. I lose everything. Now that you know what happened next, I think it's different to look back at that time. But as you say that the business didn't work, and I'm sure it was really hard to navigate through. There's part of me that's like, thank goodness. <laughs> because <laughs> I know that we at Foley, particularly in Houston, are just so happy you're here. And you know, you encountered and managed a lot, but I'm just really grateful that that you made it to Foley and Lardner. And you know, otherwise I might have seen you as I bought a lobster roll at a food truck when I visited Houston. But but I like being able to have you as a colleague. But with that, my last couple of questions are is there anything you haven't had an opportunity to, to highlight or to, to say that you'd, you'd like to. And then the, the final substantive question is overarching advice. And you've already given some great advice, but you know, final overarching words of wisdom. Sure. I think we've kind of hit everything that, that I want to, I want to hit, you know, I, I, what I will say is that I truly believe I found a long-term home here at Foley. My experience 
thus far has been nothing short of amazing. And I'm super appreciative of being in this space. And, and like you said earlier, went through a rough time and went through some storms and was, you know, kind of in a really low place for, for a while. But I look back on it and I'm thankful. I am actually thankful that it happened because had it not been for the business failing, had it not, I would not be here. And I'm just, I think and that's there's why. there's pearls of, there's just, there's gold. You, I don't know how to describe it. I have bad analogies right now, but just you brought forth things to this experience that I think add to the the success you will have, right? Because you've been through those other things. Yes. Yeah. I, I believe that a hundred percent. And that's why, you know, I, I wake up every day happy to go to work because I know it, it, it could be bad, you know, it could be much worse and I could be in a, in a very different place. And so I'm, I'm just super thankful. And I thank you for allowing me to share my story and, and be on here. So I think we've kind of covered everything that I would like to, I would like to cover, but from a, just the last point I will say to law students that, or those who are thinking to go to law school, that it's a long journey to get to law school through law school, but it is so worth it. And just stay the course. There are going to be some days when great things happen, and there are going to be some days when some there are going to be some unfortunate things that happen. But I think the the key in all of it, and the key for me was even keel, never too high never too low. So when the, when the good things happen, awesome. That's great. What's next? When the bad things happen, okay, how do I reset or how do I move forward? And I think ultimately life is going to keep moving no matter what. So you got to keep moving forward and you have to keep moving forward always. And so just, I will leave you with that. Just keep moving forward always. Thank you so much for that, Eric. And you never know, you just might end up on a billboard <laughs> for your law school. <laughs> you just might. <laughs> you just, just might. Just might. So listeners, if you find Eric on LinkedIn and scroll back a ways through his posts, you may just see the photo because Eric did end up on a billboard for South Texas College of Law, which is, I think, a wonderful note to end on. There's not much time for you to reply or refute that that happened. It exists. It's wonderful. <laughs> but Eric, thank you so much for being on the show. And if our listeners have questions or comments for you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Absolutely. 100%. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 